Welcome to episode two of Worth Their Weight in Gold. I first started working with Alex Lee at The Glen in 2018, an award-winning drug and alcohol rehab centre that was first created in 1994. Alex immediately impressed me in the session we were doing on public speaking. Now he's the CEO taking over from the legendary Joe Coy, but that's just one aspect of his amazing story. He's devoted most of his life to charity work, and that obviously gives him real purpose, and it began with Clean Up Australia Day when he was still in high school. His other passion is running, and in 2021, and then again in 2022, he ran 10 marathons in 10 days, and on the final day this year, broke the course record, which is just phenomenal. Now he's planning to do his own Ned Brockman, and that's a 5,000 kilometre run in Phuket in Thailand, raising money for charity. So let's get down to business. I caught up with Alex about three weeks ago in the recording studio at the Glen at Chittaway Bay. Morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. So uh, you came off a big run on the weekend in the Blue Mountains. Tell us more. Yeah, I just finished a 100k run um, in the Blue Mountains for you know, at a race called the Ultra Trail Australia. My second time doing it. Last year did it first time, took me about 23 hours, and then I gave it another go this year and got it down to 14 hours. So, yeah, uh, kind of sped up a bit. Yeah, right. So you slashed nine hours off last year's time. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and I saw a post that you put up, and you said last year you kind of stumbled your way to the line. You were absolutely exhausted. So how do you go through that massive change, like a metamorphosis almost? I think it's 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 conditioning, it's consistency, it's a lot more planning. You know, you learn from all your experiences and I've learned a lot in the last 18 months about how to get my body right, my mind right and doing the right things to, to go long. Do you train more now or do you train smarter? I train a lot smarter. I think I plan the race a lot better. I um you know, you kind of manage all parts of all parts of your mind, body and spirit and um yeah, I think it's it's just Sticking, sticking to a good plan. Yeah, it's been great to watch you because you've really kind of evolved in, uh, I reckon, the last two to three years. Uh, tell us some of the reasons why. And when I say evolved, I think you seem so much mentally stronger. Yeah, well, I think that's, um, you know, it takes a lot of mind power and mental strength to look after an organisation like, like the Glen, and always kind of constantly trying to problem solve my way through things and manage my own you know, balance as well. And, you know, running is a big part of how I manage my own mental health to make sure that I'm my best self when I'm here, here at the Glen supporting others. Hey, one final question now about running and then we'll go back to it. But sure. for our listeners who've got no idea what you went through in the Blue Mountains, mm. paint a picture for us. Yep. So, you know, starting out at Katoomba, it's a 100k run through some beautiful trails down into the valley, lots of hills up and down. There's a one section called the... Um, I think Rocky Point Trail. Code word for torture. Yeah, it was close to that at some point, <laughs> and that was about 90Ks in, so it was um, legs are already sore and, you know, having to navigate around some some pretty pretty steep and nasty rocks. Yeah. Hey, so uh, where does your story begin? Where were you brought up and tell us about your family? Yep, so I was born in Sydney. My parents are from, from Hong Kong. They migrated here in the 80s, really to give myself and my brother and sister 
a better upbringing, better education, and give us as much opportunity as they could. So the story starts in Sydney, Darlinghurst, St. Margaret's Hospital. That's where I was born. I was um, raised in a suburb called Epping, up in the northwest of Sydney. Attended school, Epping and Beecroft, and then up into Epping Boys High School as well. Yeah, Alex, I've heard you public speaking, and I know for a fact that you went through some really tough times. It might be hard to speak about this morning, but were you bullied while you were at school? Yeah, early in high school, there were, there were times when I was, I was bullied and it affected me a lot. You know, when I look back, the, I guess the bullying put me into a state of fear a lot of the times. I struggled, struggled to learn and, and, and find my, I guess, find myself. And yeah, so I was kind of first few years of high school, really kind of struggled to fit in, to find, find my group and, and groove. Were you the only one or were there people that were in a similar situation to you and did you feel like at sometimes there was no way out? You know, I, I, I can't remember whether there was other kids that bullied. I think at the time I felt like the only one. But I think the greatest thing that happened to me was there was support from the school. You know, we had a, a school counsellor who I could I could speak to. You know, my parents, although we didn't, I didn't explicitly tell them about what was happening, I think they, were, they knew and they were always very, very loving as well. So yeah. they could see you gone through a change. Everyone always described me back in the days as one of the very, very shy kids who never liked to speak. And I feel like that was probably part of the effects of getting bullied, that I've, you know, I've, I've had a lot, a lot of fear. Going to your shell even more. Yeah, yeah abs- absolutely. Mm. So who was the person that helped you at the school? Can we mention who that is on the podcast? Yeah, I remember her name was Miss, Mrs. Hayes. You know, I, I vaguely remember, but, you know, she was in the room in that the room in the admin building where um, I'd have some regular appointments with her. With the help of the school, do you start to improve academically? I did. I th- look, thinking back now, there was actually this after-school class where there were students who, you know, need a bit of special education or some additional help, which is where my parents actually enrolled me into. And, you know, I think my, my lack of kind of studying wasn't because I wasn't I wasn't smart, but because mm. I was, I was in, I was in fear all the time. I didn't want to talk. Teachers found it very hard to in, get me engaged, and so I actually went to this after-school class for probably about, I think ten or twenty weeks, and we learned everything from how to you know read and read quickly, how to find patterns in in sentences, um, how to speak up. It was a very small class. I think there were six of us. Um, it was all the the naughty kids, including me. You know, a lot of the lessons I learned there I still carry with me now. You know, how to how to read very fast, how to how to see patterns. Um, and because it was a very small class with five or six, I felt I felt safe and comfortable then. That was probably when my learning really really kicked off. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And it shows that you know sometimes class sizes are twenty five to thirty kids, and people can get lost in that, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes when you're sitting there in a big a big classroom, it's it's easy to be invisible. At home, could you speak numerous languages? Yeah, so I was brought up um, speaking Cantonese and then English was, you know, I kind of learned Cantonese and English at, at the same time. When I was young, I was still, I was still put in um, English as a second language class in primary school for the first few years, um, but then they realised I could actually speak the language really well. So, yeah, so at home, you know, I spoke Cantonese with my parents, I spoke English, but now I see it as a huge blessing you know, at the at the time when my parents kind of forced us to go to you know Cantonese school, I, and I didn't pay attention, didn't see the purpose of it. I was like, I was in Australia. If we speak English, we're going to learn this. But now, in hindsight, having 
knowing multiple languages is a is a huge it's a special ability I think. Yeah. What else do you speak? I speak Cantonese. I speak you know obviously speak English. I'm getting pretty fluent in Thai. So my wife and my fa- and her family are Thai, so I can speak that. I'm also trying to learn Mandarin. In the past, I'd learned um, some basic Arabic as well. Yeah, incredible. So you'll have to do a, a promo for Worth It Waiting Gold in every different language. So you finish high school. Do you go to university? Yeah, so I finished high school. I did pretty well in the HSC. And, you know, I took the, I guess, safe option of, of studying commerce in accounting and business management. Getting you know, raised, I was always, my dad always taught me to find a, you know, find security, find safety. And that was... Mm. That was where I landed, but I actually loved business studies. When I did that in year 10, that was my favourite subject. I loved drawing up business plans. I love working around with numbers and, and spreadsheets and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I actually really, really enjoyed studying commerce and business management. So after what you went through at school, you're a real success story, and particularly for this small class that you're in. By the way, for Mrs Hayes, what would you say to her now? Oh, wow. I'd probably... I'll probably just say a massive thank you. You know, I think there's people you meet in life who can change the course and the trajectory of what what happens. And, you know, just those few sessions I had with her definitely had has made me who I am today. Okay, so you're doing commerce. You love business studies. Mm-hmm. Where does your love of helping charities or forming charities, when does that begin? Well, helping charities be- began in high school. My love for it probably didn't happen until a bit afterwards so as part of the counseling you know, some of the suggestions through miss hayes but also another counselor outside of school as well suggest i need to surround myself with positive things you know they always say that belonging and community is one of the biggest parts of being happy and good for mental health so i got involved in some local cleanups um, when i was in high school and that's that's where it started you know from being a one-person show doing a local cleanup and then it slowly grew to neighbors family friends I think the last time I did it in my last year of high school, there were over 40 people who got involved in my cleaning up our local creeks in, in Epping. So is that the old Clean Up Australia Day? That's right, yep, yep. Mm. So that was, you know, helped organise, you know, registered a site, all the, you know, all the goodies came in with the bag and the gloves and, yeah, just look, I cleaned up some local trails which I used to walk around and it was my little kind of happy spot. Here at the Glen, 20 years on, uh, once a year I still organise a site cleanup around our local forests and get as many people involved as I can. And I see a lot of people in our community that are just kind of doing this almost every day. Down at Shelley Beach, there's a guy who picks up rubbish every morning. And I've even seen him at a rimba when I'm driving to work and he's doing the same thing. So he's finding a purpose. Absolutely. I was about to say the same thing. It's, it's, it's purposeful. And every country I go to, I kind of see people doing the same, you know, looking after our environment and our surroundings is, is so important because we are part of nature and, and the environment and we can play a positive part to it. Okay, so you're involved in Clean Up Australia. Then what's the next charity you're involved in? So when I started university, I wanted to find some extracurricular activities, you know, and I found an organisation called the Australian League of Immigration Volunteers, which worked with <coughs> refugees and asylum seekers who recently moved into Australia, also helped out in the detention centres as well. So we ran homework clubs, after-school programs, weekend excursions, you know, camps every term as well. Can you feel something different inside? And can you feel like you're on a different pathway? 
yeah, I felt I felt really challenged actually. You know, I think you know at university you're le- learning a lot of theory, you're learning from from books and lectures, but on the weekends when I'm actually working with the charities, working with people, you, you, you learn so much more about what happens in practice. Started learning about how to manage teams, how to lead people. I was really putting practice, you know, putting theory into into practice, and then the I guess the confidence in me slowly grew and grew and started becoming who who I was. So you actually leave your job, take time off to go and do volunteer work for a charity. Yeah, well, yeah, I, it was a um, when I made that decision, there was no there was no real qualms about it. When the opportunity came up to help people for what nine to twelve months, take some time off to to set this up. I just, I just knew it was something I had to do. Did you also run a charity overseas? Um, I've worked with a few charities overseas. Um, I've never started my own thing. I just kind of help out where I can. So in Thailand, I, I joined an organisation, uh, again, as a full-time volunteer called Phuket Has Been Good To Us, which works with a lot of the local schools to provide education to a lot of the kids and children boarding in those schools. So primarily around English... You know, Phuket is an island which, which which kind of thrives off the tourism sector. And so by k- teaching the kids you know, English language, it, it kind of empowered them and gave them opportunity to work in, in tourism. You know, one of the best parts of working in, in Thailand was, especially with Phuket has been good to us, was um, you know, being part of the Coconut Club, which was an after-school club, which we did activities and we had volunteers come who, rolled, who were kind of role models for some of these children as well. You know, a bit of background, a lot of these children lost, unfortunately lost parents in the in the tsunami, what, close to 20 years ago. And so I guess there's a generation where they may be lacking role models and that's what we, that's a part that we played in helping out. So through that period, again, do you put your life on hold, like your business career, to go and be a part of this charity? Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually left, left my job to do that. Yeah, I think when I was working in, in accounting and commerce, you know, I enjoyed it, but I was always yearning for a, for a greater purpose. It's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? That you're you're working in commerce, but you don't particularly need money. You need fulfilment. Yeah, and that's something I, I guess I've always been driven by from a young age. My parents probably disagree with this, but I always didn't see money as as a, as my primary purpose. You know, a lot of my kind of colleagues and friends in commerce would, would disagree with me a lot, but yeah, fulfilment purpose, belonging, community, family, those are, to me, the priorities and that's where I, I gravitated towards. Yeah, the pillars. So do you go from Phuket to the UK? No, so the chap- the UK chapter was before Phuket. Yeah, so I was during my, it was two years of while I was at, at KPMG. I was seconded to, to London to work on some big audit projects and tenders over there. And again, while I was over there, I kind of got involved in a lot of community work as well. Yeah, what happened in the UK? Tell us more about that. I lived down towards South London in a place called Wandsworth. And I guess, you know, two stories I'm going to share is, is the first one where I used to walk down this kind of short kind of street home, which was, it looked a bit rough, but there was a house that I always walked past, which was full of, full of life. I could hear the kids, you know, having a laugh. I could hear the kids kind of screaming. And I was always curious as to, you know, who was there. I saw a little sign that said Elay's Network. So I just knocked in and popped in. And I met the Somali community and, oh, they just welcomed me with open arms. You know, I 
you know, because moving into a different country, it's very hard to settle in. You got to build your own network. You got to basically start start fresh. And um, I guess I met my new family there. And so again, I started seeing what they needed help with. I I listened, um, and we started some homework clubs. I taught them taught them maths. We played table tennis, and this whole kind of um, this community was about you know helping the next generation, helping the youth to make sure that they have. You know, opportunity uh, as as much opportunity as possible. Where we are today at the Glen on the Central Coast, the Drug and Alcohol Rehab Centre, which began in the mid nineteen nineties, the opportunity here starts as well with you just throwing your hand up to volunteer. Is that correct? Yeah. So it popped up on the on the KPMG intranet uh, in my last year there, and the Glen was seeking someone who could help with their finances, with budgets, with with everything around around risk as well. So. My boss at the time encouraged me to to apply, and um, you know I thought it was going to be a pretty competitive process, but I was the only one who put my hand up. <laughs> so yeah, I got the, got the uh, got the good run in. Yeah, absolutely. What were your first thoughts when you came here? So my first day, I um, got a, I was given a tour by some of the former clients of the Glen, and oh, you could just feel the warmth, you could feel the the love. There was so much laughter. You could just, the energy. It's hard to describe, but it's you knew it was special. And then on my second day, I went up to, at the time, we had a Hunter Valley site and I met the board. And then that's when, that's when you really, truly feel the passion behind why the Glen exists. You know, hearing the stories of, you know, Arnie Jan, Coral, Cheryl, Gail and Barb, the stories of loss, but then the stories of triumph and courage and, and determination as well. Once I met them, I, was, I knew I was going to be all in. Yeah, and how long is it a volunteer role before you actually start working here full-time? And let me ask this too. When you first came here, were there any preconceived notions of what a drug and alcohol rehab centre would look like? I guess my kind of mindset is always to walk into everything with an open mind. Be curious, don't be judgmental. And yeah, I was just kind of soaking it off and asking questions. And so I volunteered once a month for about eight months until I ended up moving moving to Thailand. But while I was over in Thailand, I still kind of kept in touch, helped out virtually with online systems and stuff, and obviously stayed in touch with Joe. I think once you kind of move, once you kind of get to know the Glen, you definitely get to know Joe, and um, we often talked talked a lot. And, yeah, we still worked on a lot, of, a few projects while I was over there. Is it surreal that you're now the CEO? Like, was that ever on your radar? No, I mean, every everything I, I do, you know, titles don't really matter to me what matters is 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 is, is the purpose it's, it's the kind of the mission I think every organization that I've kind of got in touch with I somehow you know move up and end up taking a lot of responsibility because that's what I that's what I'm driven to do take responsibility to drive things to plan things and when I was asked to be the CEO and kind of continue the legacy from Joe I guess it's a privilege and yeah I guess it's a reflection of I just really take a lot of uh, responsibility for this place how does the Glen differ to other <laughs> drug and alcohol rehab centres? Because you can feel it, it's almost palpable. Yeah, I think all, you know, all drug and alcohol rehabs, I've been to, you know, visited quite a few and they all have different cultures, different vibes. You know, I think what makes the Glen different is, is, is a couple of things. I think it's, it's, it's the people, you know, every single person who works at the Glen, you know they're here for the right reasons. I think it's, I mean, the property as well, you know, you can see that it's such a huge part of the community here. There's no fences, there's no cameras. It's just like a big family home. 
because that's a big part of how we treat, I guess, the clients as well. We're just a, we're not a jail, we're not an institution, we're a big family home, we're a loving home, we're a place where 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 people belong. Alex, when do you start running? Were you a champion when you're younger or does the running start when you're here at the Glen? Yeah, so sport has never been part of my nature. You know, through high school, I was the library nerd. I was on the computer lab. When I had to do sport, I did swimming because I could just kind of escape and hide from everyone. So yeah, sport really only started when I started at the Glen. I think um, we're all about getting outside your comfort zones. I joined the touch footy team in my second year when I started working here at the Glen. Um, I was terrible, couldn't pass. You know, I was known to just, uh, known for the drop ball. <laughs> so you're the last one selected. Oh, yeah. I think <laughs> I always tried to hide on the wing as well because at least I didn't need to pass as much. But, you know, we talk at the Glen a lot about holistic rehabilitation, about you know being physically, mentally and spiritually healthy and strong. And for me, yeah, running started as a hobby. It really started as a hobby about five or six years ago for me to de-stress, to find my happy place. Um, I started getting out on trails as well. Yeah, I felt, you know, I felt safe. I, I just ended up really, really loving it. Yeah, so at the start of the interview, I mentioned uh, 10 marathons in 10 days. Not once, but two years in succession. This year, the most recent 10 marathons in 10 days, you set your fastest time on the final day. I mean, it's mind-blowing what you achieved, and you're now in the Australian record books. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I did the first 10 in 10 marathons um, last year, really just as a bit of an experiment to kind of see see what my potential was. And then 12 months later, really, you know, after running that 10, 10 marathons, I felt I could do a bit better with a bit more planning, <laughs> with a bit more organisation. What personality type is this that we're talking about? <laughs> I don't know, it could be, could be borderline um, obsessive, but then, I don't know, I think I just, I just loved it. I love planning, I love kind of, you know, testing things and getting to find my potential. So yeah, this year, did it again. You know, with a lot more conditioning, with um, a better plan, nutrition plan, I really was quite methodical in sticking to it all. Mm. And yeah, I wanted to see what I could do. And after my ninth marathon, and you know, I found out that the um, the record for that course was you know three hours and thirty two minutes. So I said I'll try and give that a go on the last day. I've got nothing to lose. My legs are already sore. May as well just beat them up for forty two more k's. And yeah, finished just under under that by a minute. Whereabouts is the course? So it's up at Gloucester. So the the event's organised by um, CAS from independent um, running events. And, you know, there's a group of us from all around Australia who, who kind of do consecutive marathons, ultra marathons, and, you know, some of them have become my, my mentors in, in, in how to do it. So for serious runners listening to this podcast, you've done all 10 marathons sub four hours. Yeah, that's right. So... My plan from, from day one was to yeah, do every one under four hours. The first day I did in three hours and 59 and I was going to progressively get quicker depending on how, how I felt. And yeah, just chipped away at it over the 10 days. Hey, uh, every day you had a quote. Can yep. you share some of those with our listeners? I guess when I'm, when I'm running, I'm always trying to think of some of the inspiring quotes that have floated around in my head. And I think one of them was always about, about discipline and consistency and about habits and 
really, I think everything about my running in my life is just, it just comes back to being consistent. You know, I kind of look back and say, how did I become who I am now in terms of all my charity work, my running, who I am? It's just about doing things consistently. What about your recovery during the 10 marathons? Ice baths? No, so my recovery is a bit, a bit weird. I really don't. <laughs> I have a really good nap. I think my, my actual special ability is my ability to sleep anywhere on, on anything. I can sleep on concrete. I can sleep on a chair. I can sleep standing up. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is having really, really good sleep. You're going to have a crack at doing a really fast marathon at some stage. I'm sure you watched Elliot Chipkogi recently break the world record. Yeah, well, you no, know, running fast hasn't been my... Um, my biggest motivation <laughs> for me is running long. Yeah, I've got some big projects coming up where I want to go, yeah, give my um, the real endurance a test. There's a lady that lives on the Central Coast, Melissa Robertson, mm. who, who does that, and she is phenomenal. Hey, Alex, through the pandemic, I'd just like to ask, was your family overseas? Because you've got children yourself, and how difficult was that period, and has that situation changed? Yeah, so my family, my wife and, and daughter are still living in Thailand. So prior to pandemic, we'll kind of go back and forth and she'll come here and sometimes I go there. But yeah, during, during COVID, we were kind of cut off for just over two years, so I didn't get to get to see them. But, you know, again, I think it kind of forced me to adapt and, and be creative. Zoom calls and video calls and I'll come up with different games. You know, with technology, we could play virtual tennis together. She's five years old, or she's six now, but she's great with technology. You know, and at the start, we were doing English lessons. I was I had all these props where I could you know, put char- different characters on, and yeah, we got through that two years. Yeah, what's her name? Her name's Megat. And what is happening for you? Because you're transitioning, is that correct? Uh, so your days as CEO are numbered here, and everyone's going to be devastated when you leave. So what what's next for Alex Lee? Yeah, so I've always had this, um, you know, when I f- first joined the Glen, I told my wife that I would you know, give it a good go, share what I could. And there was a project around setting up the Women's Centre, which you know, you know, played a small part in getting that facility open, which is which it just recently opened. And after that, it would be my time to kind of head home. So I'm going to be leaving next year in June. And then, yeah, I'll work out what's next then. But I've got a few projects. So my first project I'm going to be doing there is doing a, a long run. You mean back in Thailand? Yeah, back in Thailand. So um, I've always had this. I remember when I did a f- session with with you, Steve, about four years ago, and you talked about the bucket list, and I had this bucket list in my. I had an idea in my head to run five thousand kilometers from you know my home in Thailand to my birth home, you know, my parents' birth home in Hong Kong, which is about five thousand k's. And so I've been kind of stewing on that for a, f- a few years. Did some planning, and it's just not. It's a little bit dangerous trying to getting through some of the jungles. So. I've decided to do a do a 5,000k run still, but just a bit safer. So I'm going to run every street of Phuket, which is to me my, my second home. And that's going to start 1st of November in exactly one year's time. Yeah, wow. Raising any money for charity, raising awareness, or sometimes like you do this running just for mindfulness. Yeah, so yeah, running's always been my avenue to de-stress, meditate, be mindful, breathe. But this one... Um, yeah, I am going to be raising a little bit of money for for a cause, which is the charity I work for in Thailand. You know, Phuket has been good to us. Yeah, I'm going to be raising to kind of support some more kind of teachers and resources to get to help improve education over there. Because during COVID, we were quite lucky here where we had virtual learning. You know, not all countries had that opportunity, and so there are kids who are 
you know, behind and, you know, if I can raise a bit of money to help lift them up, that's going to be a win. Hey, uh, by the way, how long will it take you to run 5,000 kilometres? So I'm going to break it up. So I'm going to just do a <laughs> marathon every day for 120 days. Oh, my so goodness. So that's exactly 5,064 k's. I need a good lie down just hearing about this. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. And will people run with you? Uh, I mean, it's like your Pat Farmer who has travelled all over the world and, yeah, an absolute legend. And uh, you're doing something similar. Yeah, yeah. There's so, so, so many amazing runners on, on the coast. You know, I'm still planning it all out. I guess we've got to work out safety and, you know, how and who can run, run alongside. It is in tropical heat as well, so I can, you know, make sure that everyone's safe. But, yeah, definitely hope that people can come along, come along with me. Hey, while we're here, so we're in the recording studio at the Glen. We've done a lot of great sessions here. What are you most proud of in your time here? Oh, I think every time I hear a story of a, of a client who's doing well, who's kicking their own goals, you know, every single one of those stories makes me f- feel so proud. You know, when they talk about you know their achievements in life, you know, three, four, five years down the track of, of leaving the Glen, you know, you hear stories of parents having kids back in their lives, you know, getting their own house, running their own business. I think all those success stories is why why I'm here and that's what makes me feel yeah, just dead set proud. When you come here, you can't stress enough that these guys, they're, they're not stats on a piece of paper. You see the human face of drug and alcohol rehab and mm-hmm. the amount of amazing guys that I've met here that are trying to put their life back together. I often finish working here and say that's the best day I've had in years. Uh, and that happens all the time. Yeah, and now we're so lucky to see it in guys and girls, um, men and women. You know, you mentioned stats on paper, you know, being an accountant, being a, a data person. You know, we often get mixed up in seeing a lot, of, a lot of spreadsheets and systems and numbers. But like you said, it's the individual stories, it's the people, it's the humans, the faces that really stick in my mind. Mm. And that's another project that I'm always constantly trying to work on is to not see just the stats. Every statistic, there's a really, really powerful story behind it. So, Alex, if you're worth your weight in gold, what about for you? There's probably too many people to mention, but who would be at the top of your list that's worth their weight in gold? Yeah, wow. There's, yeah, there's a huge amount of people in my life who, who are worth their weight in gold. I know I've had so many mentors, so many friends and community and running but for me the person I always come back to is definitely my, my mum she's always been a giver she's taught me that actions are louder than words to you know you can express love and compassion through what you do and I think everything that I've achieved in my, in my life I kind of definitely owe it to her what's her name her name's Heidi beautiful name well uh, Alex Lee Thank you for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure sitting down with you. And uh, you're the second guest on Worth Their Weight in Gold. When we did the first episode, we actually didn't have the name. We thought it was going to be What Makes You Tick. But you are definitely, my friend, worth your weight in gold. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Loved it. Alex Lee, one of the nicest people I've had the pleasure to work with, and he'll be sorely missed when he leaves the Glen next year. Running 10 marathons in 10 days is staggering, 
but I can't wait to cheer Alex on when he goes for 5,000 kilometres, his own Ned Brockman-style run in Phuket next year. Don't forget, if you know someone worth their weight in gold, make sure you reach out and give me all the details. Next up, one of my best mates. He's a legendary cameraman who's worked at six Olympic Games. In that time, along with his wife Jenny, he's raised a severely autistic son, Jonathan, and there's no doubt it did take a toll on the family. He also survived an accident that changed his life forever while he was training for an Ironman triathlon. He's a hero to me, and I can't wait to share his story on episode three. I hope you've enjoyed this edition. Best wishes, and we'll catch you next time on Worth Their Waiting Gold.